You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome to America's Web Radio. This is Ron Bachman, and you're listening to Healthcare Insight. Over the past number of weeks, we've talked about various forms and shades and proposals for healthcare reform at the national level. We've talked about issues that states could take up to reform healthcare and the health delivery system and in particular health insurance at the state level as well as the federal level. In the last few weeks, we've been talking about understanding healthcare consumerism, where healthcare consumerism is really the underlying issue that needs to be established in any kind of health reform. It's an area that most people really don't understand and appreciate the potential impact of what I call healthcare consumerism. A lot of people think about account-based plans, health savings accounts, health reimbursement arrangements, flexible spending accounts, all those sorts of account-based programs where individuals have a certain amount of money that they can spend, that they have decisions over, that they have control over those dollars. And that can certainly change behaviors. It can certainly make us more aware of the costs that are involved in any healthcare service or healthcare vendor that we choose to utilize to deal with our sickness or illness or accident. Whatever that is, that's a very important new concept that's really only been with us a limited number of years. But the real issue about healthcare consumerism is to take that to another level. And unfortunately, most insurance companies, even many employers, have not taken the account-based plan concepts to another level that I call healthcare consumerism. Because healthcare consumerism says you're not only going to have money that can be used out of some pot to pay for healthcare expenses, so you have some real decision-making. You have some ability to save money so that it's not just a one-year contract for health insurance but it's an accumulating asset if you save those dollars and use them effectively for when you really need them, when you have a major healthcare situation you have to deal with. So we've been talking about healthcare consumerism, and it's a concept that empowers people because if you do the right things after you select your plan, after you go through open enrollment with your employer, or after you make a purchase of that individual policy with the insurance company, Your plan is not set. It's not fixed in stone. Your plan is then flexible enough so that if you do the right things, if you take care of yourself, you follow your doctor's orders, you keep up with your biometrics of blood pressure, cholesterol, nicotine use, body mass index, A1C, waist size, whatever it is, you can get rewards and incentives that will add to a pot of money that you control as a consumer, as a patient, so that you are empowered more over the year by the choices you make. But you can't make those choices unless the underlying plan is established to be able to reward and incentivize you. That's what healthcare consumerism is really all about. And that's what we've been talking about. How do we make that change to actually implement and grow healthcare consumerism? Whether it's government programs, whether it's private industry programs, whether it's association programs, whatever it is, If, in fact, you don't allow the consumer, the policyholder, the plan member to have those options to be able to do the right things and be rewarded and incentivized 
to be reinforced with good behaviors, then ultimately your plan is nothing more than a piece of paper with deductibles and co-payments. It's not a dynamic plan that really changes behaviors. And that's what healthcare consumerism is at its core. How do we change people's behaviors? Because we're typically American. We want to be rewarded for doing the right things. If I do something to help the insurance company save money, I would like to have a share of that savings. If I help my employer not to have to spend so much because I'm doing the right things, I would like the employer to share back and reinforce those good behaviors so I'll do them again. But today I want to change course. Today I want to set aside the whole idea of health reform in terms of how should policies be designed. And I want to set aside the idea of healthcare consumerism. We've just highlighted in sort of the elevator discussion and description of what healthcare consumerism is all about. Because there's another aspect of healthcare policy that's going to have and is having a dramatic effect on what's available to individuals. And that's because while many times we hesitate to talk about it, politics is critical to establishing a fair and equitable way to finance your health care policy. And it's also critical in how health care, as opposed to health insurance, but how actual health care is delivered. And, you know, there's a circle of life that I like to call it in any kind of political environment. It usually starts off with legislation. Policies are passed in the Congress, signed into law by the president, and that's the legislation and is the start of a new framework or a new issue that we all have to comply with, that insurance companies need to uh, comply with, that individuals have to recognize and be following. But after legislation comes the idea of regulation. And regulation is how the bureaucrats write the rules around any legislation. Because legislation is usually pretty murky. It's compromise, it's legalized language, and any kind of legalized language, different lawyers can interpret it different ways. Different insurance companies can read the guidelines in a law and say, well, maybe I have to do this, maybe I have to do that. So the regulators write the rules, they answer questions around what laws uh, really mean, and they go back to original intent. They go back to the debates on the floor of the Congress. They go back to uh, presidential notes that may be made about a particular piece of legislation. So you have legislation first, then you have regulation. The third area is compliance. Whether you're an employer, an insurance company, a healthcare vendor, a hospital system, a doctor, whatever it is, after all that is done, the law is written, the regulations give the clarity on it, then there is a compliance aspect of actually implementing the change as required by law. And that's never an easy process because usually most laws put the burden of change, the cost of change, onto somebody else. Typically, states, employers, insurance companies, various supply vendors, they all have to then fall under the laws and regulations to be compliant to adhere to the law as it's described by the bureaucrats. But, you know, the bureaucrats don't have the final say-so because the fourth 
And final piece of this circle of life is litigation. Litigation is where it goes to courts and any new law, the language of that law, while it may be interpreted by some bureaucrat to establish a compliance and uh, answering questions about what something means, ultimately it's the courts that will decide what that language means. And anytime you have new language, new laws, the reality is that the courts are going to have to ultimately determine it. So somebody will bring to the table a concern that the compliance is not appropriate, that the law is not constitutional, that the regulators overstated what was required. And so somebody will sue and it will go to the courts. And then after a court makes a decision, if it's adverse to what some of the original intent was and there's still the political power to change what the court is ruling, it goes back to legislation. And we repeat the cycle of life from that new legislation back to regulations, back to compliance, and then that may be challenged in the courts as well. So that's sort of the circle of life for lawyers. It's sort of the uh, full employment for lawyers uh, process. So what I want to do over this hour is talk about healthcare policy, specifically in this, this current year, 2020, and what the courts are doing relative to healthcare policy, because there has been a lot of healthcare policy. I know we all think that, well, the Affordable Care Act was passed uh, nine years ago, almost 10 years ago now, in 2010, and there are some challenges going on in court, but we kind of put that aside. Well, there's a lot of other stuff that's going on relative to the Affordable Care Act, but also relative to Medicare and Medicaid. We have an entirely different administration in charge. And the bureaucrats of that administration are making determinations, changing rules, changing regulations, reversing things that were done by the previous administration in the interpretation of the existing law. And many times they have passed new pieces of law, again, that are going through this cycle of regulation, compliance, and litigation. So there's an enormous amount that's going on there that we need to recognize. And I'd like to spend time talking about that today because it is so critical, so critical to what we are able to receive as members of society from our healthcare policies. And if you're under Medicare, Medicaid, those are government programs and they have the same kind of process of regulators saying what something should mean and how it's interpreted. So I wanna go over a good number of items that are out there today because the process started on many of this when the Trump administration came into power and they made several pronouncements, several executive orders, and there were a number of lawsuits from what they did. And so we saw in 2019 some uh, court hearings on a number of cases related to the Affordable Care Act. And several other Trump administration policies were also being challenged, including Medicare payment policies, price transparency, how the Medicaid program can change, and whether the Medicaid beneficiaries can even sue over certain curtailed benefits. And also, as we've heard in, in a separate area, but never thought about how it ultimately relates to healthcare, how the immigration changes affect access to programs like Medicaid. So in 2020, the courts will continue to play an important role 
as some cases continue in the process and the potential for new lawsuits and challenges in the administration's continued efforts to change health care policy. Now, most of what I'm going to talk about in this hour was actually presented by Groom Law. It's a very well-respected law firm in Washington, D.C. that keeps up with health care policy. It is probably the best source of health care policy. So, Anything I say and the issues I'm going to go through and the summaries that I give are really going to be based to a large degree on the information recently put out on the courts and healthcare policy in 2020 by Groom Law. So I hope I'm not impinging on any copyright information because it does seem to be publicly available and it's out there. And the details further, if you want real lawyers who know what they're doing, you can contact Groom Law. Maybe this is an advertisement for them to be able to get more customers as well. So I want to talk about these issues today, and we're going to start off with cases related to the Affordable Care Act when we come back in just a few minutes from taking a commercial break. So again, this is Ron Bachman on America's Web Radio, and you're listening to Healthcare Insight. We'll be back in just a minute. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Healthcare Insight. We're going to dive into some of the court cases that we're seeing in 2020, some of which may come to conclusion out of Supreme Court decisions, some of which are in the, the chain and the process of litigation that may ultimately make it to the Supreme Court. It may be stopped at a lower court, and the Supreme Court doesn't want to hear it. But there's an awful lot of things going on right now related to the Affordable Care Act, related to the private market insurance, related to Medicare and Medicaid, that is really worth looking at and studying and becoming aware of. So much so that I wanted to take a break from understanding healthcare consumerism and get into some of these issues. Now, you don't have to be a lawyer listening to this. You can be just a regular citizen like me who's interested in following some of these issues so that if they do come to fruition, you'll have a little bit better understanding. And certainly relative to the current political environment, we are in election year after all, that some of this is important to what the Trump administration is trying to do with health care. Some of you may agree with the changes that they're suggesting, and some of you may disagree. But there's an awful lot going on that's worth being aware of. Probably the most consequential case related to the Affordable Care Act is the constitutional challenge to the law under a challenge that's called Texas versus the United States. And the reason it's called Texas versus the United States is that a group of Republican-controlled states and two Texas residents argue that the entire Affordable Care Act became unconstitutional when Congress eliminated the penalty for individuals who failed to obtain health insurance. Now, if you remember last year, effective January 1st, 2019, under one of the tax reform bills, the individual mandate, the penalty for not having insurance was actually set at zero. So basically it was eliminated. Well, an awful lot of people felt that the Supreme Court ruling on the Affordable Care Act was that it was determined that it was a tax 
And as a tax, the federal government can impose something on the American people because it is a tax. Well, what's happened so far? Last month, in January 2020, a divided three-judge panel of the Fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals issued a ruling stating that the individual mandate was unconstitutional because it can no longer be justified as a tax since Congress set the penalty at zero. So we have a ruling that says it's unconstitutional. Well, what did the three-judge panel decide once they said it was unconstitutional? How much of it's unconstitutional? The whole thing? Or just certain parts of it? Well, what the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals decided to do was they sent the court case back to a lower court to try to determine at that lower court level what portions of the Affordable Care Act are and are not severable from the individual mandate. In other words, if the individual mandate is un makes parts of it unconstitutional, what about the rest of the bill? And that's a pretty good debate to go on because there is no severability clause in the original Affordable Care Act. The original Affordable Care Act failed to include a provision which most laws of that significance and complexity include. But basically, at the very last of any bill, it says if any one part of this bill is unconstitutional or is in violation of other laws, the rest of the bill stands as written. Unfortunately, they didn't do that in the Affordable Care Act. Whether that was an oversight or done purposefully, I don't know. But I know from reading it that, in fact, there is no severability clause in the Affordable Care Act. So I'm not quite sure what that lower court is going to do and how they're going to sort of split this baby when the Affordable Care Act says you can't split the baby. It's either all or nothing. So it'll be an interesting argument to watch. Now, a coalition of Democratic attorney generals from various states has asked the U.S. Supreme Court to take up the case and not wait for the Texas court to rule on whether some or all of the ACA provisions are so intertwined with the individual mandate that they too must be deemed unconstitutional. So I think the Democratic attorney generals are thinking along the same lines that I am, that in fact the lower court is going to have a hard time finding that because the individual mandate no longer exists, the Affordable Care Act was judged by the Supreme Court as being a tax bill, which they could then let fly as being constitutional, because otherwise it's not constitutional. You can't make the American people do anything. You can't force them to do anything like buy an insurance policy unless it's a tax, because we do have a constitutional amendment that allows us the Congress to tax us. But once that's taken away, they can't make you buy a product. They can't go out, for example, and make you buy a Chevrolet. They can't make you buy a car. They can't make you buy a house. That's not constitutional. But they can add a tax. And since that individual tax has now been eliminated, or at least the penalty is set at zero, can the bill really be called a tax? And so I think a lot of the attorney generals out there are really worried that, in fact, the whole, the whole Affordable Care Act is going to be declared unconstitutional at the appellate court level. 
So instead of waiting for that to happen, they want to take it directly to the Supreme Court, which is what they've really asked to do, because they had a more favorable ruling at the Supreme Court when it was first put up to the Supreme Court, but that was included the individual mandate at the time. So this coalition of Democratic senators has asked the United Supreme Court to take up the case and not wait for that lower court and to try to determine whether things are so intertwined at the individual mandate with the individual mandate that they the whole bill must be determined and deemed to be unconstitutional. They know that Supreme Court is, is less likely to make that kind of dramatic change for something that has existed now for almost 10 years and is so intertwined with our health care system and our health insurance system that Supreme Court really doesn't like to make that kind of a dramatic change to remove something without having something to replace it because Congress has not passed a repeal and replace legislation. So if Supreme Court was to rule against the Affordable Care Act, um, the Republicans and whoever's in control of Congress are going to have to act pretty fast uh, to make something available to the American public so they don't, everybody doesn't lose their health insurance. So that's a big deal. Keep that in mind. It's called Texas versus the United States, and that's the essence and core of their arguments. Is it still a tax because the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that it was constitutional because it was a tax, and now that it's not a tax, can it now be ruled unconstitutional? Let's take one more item in this uh, segment, at least one more item in this segment to talk about. Again, a little bit off the radar screen for most of us, but it's something called risk corridors. And risk corridors was something that was put in by Congress in the Affordable Care Act to sort of help the insurance companies come along and support the Affordable Care Act. For those of you who have been around long enough and go back to Hillary Care in the early 90s. It was opposed by the insurance companies. We had something called the Harry and Louise ads on TV that talked about the horrors of what was then called Hillary Care, of a national takeover, much like the Affordable Care Act is now, but it was proposed in a little different form in the early 1990s. But basically the same thing, a government getting more involved and in taking over control of the health insurance and health care system. So in the Affordable Care Act, they got around that opposition from the insurance companies, which can be very formidable because they got a lot of money. They can put up TV ads. They can uh, encourage and reach a lot of people to oppose any legislation, which is what they did in the 1990s. Well, with the risk corridors is a fancy term for monies that were put up to pay insurance companies for any losses that they had, any high risk that they assumed. So the Supreme Court is already reviewing this case. It's a challenge brought by health insurance companies seeking $12 billion in what they call risk corridor payments that were envisioned under the Affordable Care Act. The risk corridor program was designed to compensate insurers who lost money in the early years of the uh, federal exchanges. But ultimately, congressional Republicans blocked the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services from making most of those promised payments. Now, the reality is that 
there were different interpretations. Remember, I got back to the legislation, regulation, compliance. Well, in the regulations, the interpretation of the law, which was unclear, was that companies that had gains from the Affordable Care Act, where everybody was mandated to have insurance, some companies would get better risks and some companies would get worse risks just by the selection process of, I want that policy, but you want another policy. You want Blue Cross Blue Shield and I want United. Well, if one company got better risks than another one, the companies that got the better risks would have more profit. And the companies that got the worse risk would have more losses. As a result, the companies that made money were supposed to pay the companies that lost money a share of those profits to offset the losses. But if the companies making money weren't enough to offset the losses, then the federal government was supposed to step in and make up that difference so that all insurance companies were made whole at the end of the day and allowed to make a profit and offset the losses they would otherwise have from signing up bad risks. Well, that was one interpretation. The other interpretation, and many say the original meaning and discussion around that uh, risk corridor adjustment, was that the profit and losses would only come from within those insurance companies. The federal government was just an outside third party watching the process and facilitating it, but they had no obligation if the industry in total wasn't making any money, or that the losses were greater than the profits from the companies that got good risks. So... That's where the Republicans blocked the, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services from making those payments out of the federal treasury. Well, that case has already been heard. And we don't hear a whole lot about that, but the Supreme Court has actually heard that case and is trying to make it an interpretation of what is the right thing to do under that Affordable Care Act law. Now, personally, I think that there was no guarantee that the federal government would step in and make those payments as necessary. And there's about $12 billion of industry losses that the insurance companies are asking the federal government to make up for. But who knows? You get nine lawyers in, in a room trying to read a law and they'll all read it differently. What's interesting about this case is that the court has already heard it and the court is expected to issue a ruling by June of 2020. So right in the middle of an election year, we're going to see a major ruling reflecting the profits or losses of the insurance industry, and then we'll see how they react to that court ruling, because they've had some losses that they expected the federal government to pay for, and we'll see how they react and where we go next. Well, that's a quick insight during this segment. We're going to come back after this short break, and we're going to talk about a number of other lawsuits a number of very interesting issues that will relate to you as consumers out there and what you can buy and what you can't buy and what some of the lawsuits uh, are that are still out there. So come on back in just a couple minutes. We'll see you here on America's Web Radio. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Healthcare Insight on America's Web Radio. This is Ron Bachman, and we've been talking about legal cases, court challenges to the Affordable Care Act, and beyond. You don't have to be a lawyer listening to this to find this stuff hopefully fascinating, insightful, presented simplicity with simplicity that hopefully everybody can understand. 
These are critical issues. If you're worried about anything relative to healthcare, if you're looking for that healthcare insight, the name of this program, these are issues that are developing and are going to be really important to how healthcare is delivered and is made available to individuals out there and what insurance companies can do to provide the products and services that you want. Blue Cross, Blue Shield, Aetna, Cigna, United, Humana, all those companies are going to be subject to these rulings that are going to change their business model, change what they can offer. And that's what we've been talking about today. So let's pick up a couple more items in this world of change. One area that you may have heard just in passing, if nothing else, is the phrase association health plans. Many companies are very excited about the idea of association health plans, but what are they? And what's the situation with association health plans and what's going on in the courts? Well, association health plans reflect that there is a group of people, usually with some affiliation, either as members of a club of an organization, their associations are set up to sell various products online. One of those products might be a health insurance policy. These are typically individual policies, not group policies. And association policies are recognized by most state laws. And if you group people together buying individual policies, many times the obvious idea is by grouping people together, I can get a lower premium. I can get a better sharing of risks. I can get a larger population that I can deal with more effectively as an insurance company. And typically in the past, you had to have some sort of real affiliation to an association, whether it was the same industry or the same membership in another organization. What you tried to avoid historically in the past is getting people together for the sole purpose of buying insurance. There always had to be something else that connected us, that there was a stickiness, if you will, to the association. Because opening up association plans means that there are a lot of different ways I could connect to other people. I can connect to other people by being a member of Sam's Club. I can connect to people by being a member of my uh, industry association. I can become a member by being a member of the Chamber of Commerce. And if the group that I select to get my health insurance program from happens to have very poor experience, happens to have a lot of claims because a lot of bad risks have selected or been a part of that association, the premiums are going to go up for that association. Well, if the premiums go up too high and I'm actually a healthy individual, I'm am likely to say, you know, that industry association really isn't very healthy. I'd like to become a member of the Chamber of Commerce Association. They've got healthier people and much better risks, and I can get a lower premium for my group. So I wind up leaving my industry association to go for the Chamber of Commerce Association. Well, what do you think that does to my industry association health plan risk? The bad risk will stay because they may not have many other options on where to go, and they're getting their health claims paid. But I leave, so that just increases the risk, the average cost for everybody else. And as that cost increases, more and more companies who have better risks than the average 
are likely to leave, which creates a death spiral in the process. And whoever is left in the association that I leave, that everybody is leaving, winds up with very high premiums and no place else to go. So associations can be good and they can be very bad. Well, one lawsuit challenges the administration's expansion of association health plans through a Department of Labor rule that seeks to make it easier for small employers to band together and offer plans that do not have to comply with the Affordable Care Act consumer protections. Part of this idea is that you don't have to be a member of an association for reasons other than health insurance. You can just get everybody together who has an interest in health care, other small employers, but there's no other reason to stay together. So there's a lawsuit there that's in play. And a panel of the U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit heard oral arguments in November of 2019. And a ruling is expected to come in the next few months. So the availability and the structure and the design of association plans, which could be very good. And the, associ the association plans are something that Republicans have been promoting for a long time. They could really kind of almost shut them down, limit them, go back to the old rules, or maybe allow for an expansion and we'll sort of see what actually happens. My personal opinion is I think association plans could be very good, but I'm more on the side that they could be very bad for individuals and even small employers because of the death spiral that can occur when there's no other reason to get together but for the purpose of insurance and there are a lot of different associations I can attach myself to. So we'll see where that comes out. But that's a ruling that should come out in the spring, certainly by the end of June when, when uh, most um, court hearings by the Supreme Court and many of the Court of Appeals uh, will make their rulings. It may come before then. Well, what's the other thing that uh, you may hear about and be on people's minds in sort of a, just a general way, but there are court cases going on around some of these areas. The term short-term plans, what does that mean? Well, typically a short-term health insurance plan is usually a limited plan. Maybe it has a limited maximum lifetime coverage. Maybe it has limitations inside. Maybe it's only for hospitalization, but it's not a specialized program. It's not a hospital indemnity, but it's mainly for in-hospital costs. But it's usually for terms of less than a year or so. I don't know that there's an actual definition of what short-term is in the law, but typically I think of it as somebody who's been in this industry for a long time as policies that are usually six months to a year long. They're usually good for covering between jobs, or if you have a short-term concern, you'll buy a short-term policy, usually cheaper in many ways, but um, they'll cover your, your temporary need. So similar to the association health plan case that we just described, this case involves administration's expansion of short-term, limited-duration plans, which also need not comply with the Affordable Care Act protections. Briefing in the case is kind of ongoing, and the court has not yet scheduled a date for oral arguments. So this one's a little bit behind in the process of the association plans. But there's going to be a lot of discussion this year 
And again, it's another case that could be ruled on differently by different circuit courts and ultimately could go to the Supreme Court. But I think we're going to see some rulings on this because it is important as an option, as a choice for what individuals can buy or purchase. It doesn't have the same problems of association plans that I can leave and go here, I can go there. This is where you normally would buy the policy from an insurance company. It's just a year or less in term. And some of that would not technically comply with the existing rules and regulations of the Affordable Care Act. But the Trump administration is trying to make more options and choices available to the general public. Now let's wrap up this um, next three or four minutes, uh, this segment, with something that gets a little bit into the weeds, but I'll try to be very clear about it. The term that's used is cost-sharing reductions. Cost-sharing reductions. Cost-sharing reductions is something most of us don't even know about or, or recognize or fully understand. But cost-sharing reductions are under the Affordable Care Act. If somebody who is very low income was buying from a federal exchange one of the insurance policies, and they couldn't even afford the deductible and the co-payments. The insurance companies were allowed to lower the deductible and co-payments that that individual would have to pay out of pocket. Most of us didn't even know that existed. Well, litigation continues over the Affordable Care Act's cost-sharing reduction program, which was intended to compensate insurers. Again, it's money set aside for insurers for setting low deductibles and co-payments on the federal exchanges. In 2017, the administration decided to stop making those cost-sharing reduction payments, prompting numerous lawsuits from insurers. So again, this goes back to where the insurer is suing the federal government. The insurers have won various lower court rulings, and a consolidated group of lawsuits is on appeal at the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit. Oral arguments were scheduled in 2020. And they were scheduled originally in January. I don't know if they've actually been held or they've been delayed or put off, but this is something that has reached the Court of Appeals and is very active. The cost-sharing reduction litigation raises legal issues similar to those posed by the risk corridor case at the Supreme Court because both involve government payments to insurance companies that were intended by the drafters or supposedly intended by drafters of the ACA, but subsequently revoked. Now, again, the interpretation of the original drafters, it's hard to say. We didn't really have much debate. If you remember back when it was passed, it was passed um, by the Senate, word for word, equal to what the House had passed, because it originally went over to the Senate and then got passed, but between when it was passed in the Senate and when it got back to the House, Ted Kennedy had passed away. And the Democrats no longer had a filibuster proof 60 votes in the Senate. So the House had to pass exactly word for word what the Senate did, send it back to the Senate, and they could not make any changes. So it never got to a conference committee to work out the bugs and differences between a House and a Senate version. So there was no extended debate on all this. So it's going to be tough to know what the intent of the drafters was. So the Supreme Court's decision on the, uh, the risk quarter case may therefore presage the eventual outcome 
on the cost sharing reduction. So you have these two cases that the insurance companies are bringing against the federal government and the Supreme Court's going to rule on the risk order case first. And that may determine what happens with this item here. We're talking about the cost sharing reductions. I know it's a lot of terminology. Hopefully some of that was clear, at least makes you aware that there are these court cases that can completely change the way the Affordable Care Act is run and operated. Let's take another quick break and we'll come back with another section of what's going on in the Supreme Court and in the appellate court and what you might expect. So hang with us. We'll be back in just a minute. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Web Radio in the final segment of Healthcare Insight. Most of the material we've been talking about is from a paper sent out by Groom Law, located in Washington, D.C., and other cities around the country. They are an excellent source of health legal information, whether you're on one side of this issue or the other side of the issue. If you really want to know what's going on, keep up with them and their mailings. If you want to be involved as part of the litigation, I suggest you contact them because these are really good, knowledgeable people. And if you're interested in healthcare, I don't know how you cannot be interested in politics and in legal issues around the new laws that have come out of the politics in creating health care and health insurance environments that we live in. You know, democracies are all about self-governance. How do we work across all the ideologies, all the population to help people live their lives safely, happily, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? That's what all this is about. So if you're a healthcare junkie in any way and you're listening to these programs, and I've got great response from people, by the way, listening to these. Yes, sometimes we get down in the weeds. Sometimes we get into some details. But I think we pass along information and ideas that many people have found helpful, useful, and I've gotten emails and comments back that, in fact, it's making a difference for people who want to listen to this. So let's take this last segment and talk about a few more court cases, since it's so exciting to talk about the legal issues. And that's why I'm breaking from our normal pattern on healthcare consumerism to talk about the legal issues, because these are things that are happening right now. These are topical. Uh, You could hear about these uh, throughout this election season. They could be coming in tomorrow's headlines. So the next area I want to talk about is the contraceptive mandate. Now, this is at the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is considering whether to take up another controversial Affordable Care Act-related issue. The AC's requirement that employers provide coverage for birth control in employee health plans is really what's at issue. Last year, two federal appeals courts blocked the Trump administration rules that created exemptions for employers with religious or moral objections to the contraceptive mandate. Now, the reason why at the core some object to this is the right to life movement that's been stronger and stronger over the last few years as science has shown that 
babies in the womb can live, that there's a heartbeat earlier on, that they could actually be born premature and still live at very early uh, stages of development. And then with birth control, it's no longer the idea of birth control to prevent pregnancy. Many of the birth control uh, activities today are after the fact. In other words, it's after conception has occurred that the drug or medication actually eliminates that fertilized egg from the female so that it's, it's uh, after the uh, conception where all this occurs. And that's killing what many think is a live birth or potentially live birth because they believe that conception occurs at the moment of fertilization. And if that's your belief, that's your faith belief, then you shouldn't be required to provide coverage to eliminate that birth. So the justices will discuss whether to take up the case at their private conference, which I think they've already done in January, but they haven't announced yet whether they're going to take up the case. So that announcement probably will be coming fairly soon, since the date of putting together this program is early March. So we'll see how that comes out. That will be a very controversial, and actually, depending upon the ruling, could have a big impact on the electorate. Because there's a lot of people out there very pro-life. There's a lot of people very pro-choice. And whichever way the Supreme Court rules, if they take up this case, is likely to upset half the population. But that's what we have the Supreme Court for, to make these kinds of decisions and to have us all live under those decisions. But that doesn't make it easy. And the idea would be it may mean that somebody will vote so that their presidential candidate would be able to nominate somebody to the next vacancy in the Supreme Court that would rule differently. But we'll see that how that comes out. But the contraceptive mandate that's in the current law is going to be a very controversial issue the way the Trump administration has allowed for exemptions. Now let's talk about the next area. A little bit into the weeds again, but we'll try to clarify it, keep it simple. It's called non-discrimination provisions. A new lawsuit is likely this year. It hadn't started yet, but a new lawsuit is likely this year over the administration's efforts to weaken some of the Affordable Care Act non-discrimination provisions. HHS is currently finalizing regulatory changes expected to roll back Obama-era protections for groups such as transgender people, gay and lesbian people, and people who have terminated a pregnancy. Very controversial area for very active political segments of our society. So this is going to be a very difficult case. We don't have it yet before the Supreme Court. It's just a new lawsuit that's likely to happen as these rules and regulations are rolled out. Because once the administration issues its final rule, that is when a legal challenge is expected. Now, given it's an election year, maybe the Trump administration will delay it until after the election. That would be my guess. But who knows where some of this is going? Now, let's turn our attention to um, Medicaid. 
because an awful lot of people in this country get their health care through Medicaid. That's the insurance for the poor. Medicare is insurance for the elderly. So let's look at Medicaid issues that are before the courts or likely to come before the courts. So as this Trump administration injects conservative policies into the Medicaid program, objectors to those changes are filing lawsuits. Now, what do we mean by conservative policies? Well, it's hard to put your finger on it, but I would classify it this way when it's used in this description. That conservative policies would say, I will help you, but you have to help yourself. You have to have some skin in the game. Some would call it in a family environment, tough love. I'll help you, but I'm not going to give you anything unless you help yourself. I will show you how to fish rather than giving you fish so that you can be self-supportive down the road. Now, not everybody believes in those concepts, and that's part of our political debate today. So let's take an issue around that concept, work requirements. The most prominent legal issue in Medicaid is the ongoing fight over work requirements. And a key ruling from the DC circuit could come almost at any time around this. So do you give Medicaid to anybody and everybody who would otherwise qualify, but they're able to work? and ultimately get off of Medicaid, maybe get coverage through their employer or have enough money to buy an individual health insurance policy? Or do we just give them Medicaid along with giving them housing and food stamps and free phones and all the things that we try to make available to people who are really in need? But we know that people who are capable of doing work in this environment, the job jobless rate is so low that People, companies are looking to hire people. They're training people. It's a whole different world. And so right now, why shouldn't people be required to go to work? This country needs workers. And it gives them the dignity of work. That's the conservative philosophy. Well, the Congressional or the um, Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services has aggressively advocated for work requirements to be included on state programs where states are asking for waivers to change their Medicaid program in various ways, one of the big issues is whether you include work requirements or not. So as these waivers to change the Medicaid programs on a state-by-state -state basis, as waivers including work requirements are approved, opponents are responding with lawsuits challenging those waivers. Democrat appointed District Judge James Boasberg repeatedly sided with the opponents last year, ordering Arkansas to suspend its work requirement program and blocking the policy from taking effect in Kentucky and New Hampshire. Other lawsuits challenging the policy in Indiana and Michigan are in the early stages before Boasberg and more lawsuits are likely to be coming. Boasberg's rulings against work requirements are now on appeal at the D.C. Circuit, which heard oral arguments this past October 2019. The D.C. Circuit has considered the case on an expedited schedule. 
So we'll see where that comes out. Work requirements, some people think it would really be helpful to people that are in most need. Others think that we just ought to give them the aid, that there's a reason they're not able to work and forcing people to work when they otherwise really can't under somebody else's judgment. Why would we do that? That's cruel and unusual punishment for people who are otherwise having problems in their life. So why should we require work requirements? Well, work requirements in the past, in my experience, hasn't always been actually employment with getting paid on an hourly basis or on a salary basis for some company. Work requirements could mean going to college, going to a trade school, getting the skills necessary to actually go to work. So an individual's work is getting a better education. I don't know how the ultimate laws are going to wind up being in each state. I'm not sure what that ruling is going to wind up being, but I think it's going to be a key element in how Medicaid is available going forward. And whether that increases or decreases the uninsured, I don't know. Many people think it would just decrease the number of uninsured, which means hospitals and doctors would have more uncompensated care, people walking into emergency rooms that don't have Medicaid because they didn't go to work when they could have. Well, we're not going to leave them dying on the streets. We'll have to take care of them somehow. But I think, as with welfare reform in the 1990s, when we included work requirements, more people got off of welfare and gained the dignity of work, were better role models for their children. And so the underlying issue for conservatives like myself is this ought to be allowed and at least experimented in states to see what the success rate is. There are many other areas of healthcare reform and court challenges that are going on. But I think we've touched on the most important ones today. And I appreciate your attention, your interest in health care and in health insurance and health policy and the courts and how everything is moving forward. So join us next week again on America's Web Radio. This is Ron Bachman signing off for Healthcare Insight. We'll see you next week back at the same location. Thank you for listening to us and have a good week until we see you again next time. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.